Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. My dad, being a very, very traditional Chinese father, he said, this one has to be the boy. It's got to be. I have two daughters. I need a son to carry the family name. Let's do it. Let's have it. And then out I came, <laughs> this little baby girl full of life, full of you know energy. And what was even more confusing for me was on the one hand, I'm being told, you should have been a boy. You should have carried the family name. And so here I am trying to act boyish. And then on the other hand, I'm being told, oh, but you have to be a good Chinese girl and good mm -hmm. Chinese girls are quiet. You please other people. You know, you're, you're kind, you're nice. You don't play sports. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls. And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you? What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are? Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hello, my beautiful friends. Welcome back to the podcast. 
You may have heard me say before that growing up, I had no idea that boundaries were a thing. I didn't know I could make a strong decision around what was good for me or not good for me. I didn't know that I had power over myself or my life. I'd been taught to listen, do as I was told, follow the rules, and that left me in some really vulnerable places as a child and as an adult. So this week, I am sharing 10 powerful and effective strategies that you should know to master creating boundaries for yourself and for your life. The link for this blog post can be found in the show notes. This week, my incredible guest is Amy Yip. Amy was supposed to be a boy, according to her father. There were two girls already in her family, and Amy's father, a traditional Chinese man, felt it was important for him to continue the family name. Since Amy was born, she was told over and over throughout her life, you were supposed to be a boy. Wishing to please her father, Amy tried to act like a boy, but confusingly she was also told that she was meant to be a good Chinese girl, quiet, kind and nice. As she grew older, the shoulds of Amy's life became more and more suffocating. Her parents had high expectations. And Amy felt disconnected from a mother and a father who never said I love you or showed any kind of physical or emotional connection, but expected Amy to follow the rules and create the life they desired for her. Finally, Amy decided it was up to her to teach her parents how to love her and to show them that she was capable of making her own decisions. It was when Amy decided to write her book called Unfinished Business breaking down the great wall between adult children and immigrant parents, that she spent many hours sitting with her parents and hearing their stories and connecting with them on a level that she'd never experienced before. Amy is a coach and she is helping women to create the change that they want to see in the world. Please join me now for Amy's story. Amy Yip, welcome. You are a life transformation and mental fitness coach, and you love to help women rediscover their inner power and pursue their big dreams. You're the author of a book called Unfinished Business, Breaking Down the Great Wall Between Adult Child and Immigrant Parents, which explores the profound influence your parents had on your life and offers readers a roadmap to navigate conversations with their own parents. You felt very stuck in your own life, living according to the shoulds. What should you do according to your parents and their expectations? Your parents emigrated to the US before you were born. Can you tell us about the story of your parents and why they emigrated to the US? Yeah. So first of all, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. In terms of my parents, so they immigrated to the US in 1978 And they had already had my two sisters. One was two-year-old and one was seven. The two-year-old had a hole in her heart. And in Hong Kong, the doctors just couldn't, they weren't great. And so my parents knew they needed to come to America, one, because they wanted to give their kids a better opportunity, a better life. And the second was to save my sister's life. So in 1978, with $1,700 in U.S. dollars in their pockets, they left my sisters with my grandparents and came to America to try to establish themselves. They knew nobody. My dad knew he had an old colleague who established a tailor shop here. And so my dad agreed to work for him for $300 a month for three years. And my mom knew nobody. So as soon as they came, they had to find her a job. And she was traveling public transportation an hour and a half to go work in a hotel cleaning rooms. So that was how they began. Two years in, my mom, surprise, got pregnant with me. And they had not planned on having a a third child. My dad, being a very, very traditional Chinese father, he said, this one has to be the boy. It's got to be. I have two daughters. I need a son to carry the family name. Let's do it. Let's have it. 
And then out I came, <laughs> this little baby girl full of life, full of, you know, energy. Um, and so growing up, my dad always told me that I left my left my private part for the, that belong to the boy <laughs> behind. He always jokes about that. He was like, because I was a month early. So he was like, you left it behind and you came out too early without it. You know, you were supposed <laughs> to be the boy, but you came out as a girl. And so growing up, I always tried to be that boy for him, playing sports, being a, proud to be a tomboy, hated hanging out with girls and having girlfriends. You know, I wanted to be a boy. Wow. That's a lot of pressure, isn't it? I mean, did you feel the pressure? Because when you're a little kid and and somebody just says, well, you needed to be a boy, it's, that's a lot for a little kid to understand. Yes. And what was even more confusing for me was on the one hand, I'm being told you should have been a boy. You should have carried the family name. And so here I am trying to act boyish. And then on the other hand, I'm being told, oh, but you have to be a good Chinese girl and good mm-hmm. Chinese girls are quiet. You please other people, you know, you're, you're kind, you're nice. You don't play sports. When I asked my parents if I could learn karate, they said, that's where boys, how about we put you in Chinese dance? And so I was in Chinese dance. I made, survived one class where I had these long ribbons and I'm tw- twirling them around. And I was like, okay, this is not for me. But I was so confused growing up all the time because, you know, my dad kept saying, you need to be a boy. And then on the other hand, he's saying, well, you can't do karate. Or I I remember this one time I was 11 and my dad was trying to fix the doorknob on the front door. I think it was the, the doorknob or the door lock. And he was fiddling with it forever. Couldn't get it fixed. He was you know yelling at the door, frustrated. And so I turn around and I'm like, hey, daddy, can I help you with that? And he looks at me, smiles and says, little girls don't know how to do this. This isn't a thing for girls. And I got so livid. I was like fuming, but being a good Chinese girl, I couldn't talk back. So I just turned back to the TV. I heard him out of the corner of my eye. I I saw him walking up the stairs to go. I heard the bathroom door. I knew he was like going to be in there for a while. And I kept looking back at the door and I was like, should I do it? Should I not? Should I do it? And I just got up. I went to the doorknob. I fiddled around with it and I fixed it. And when he came down, he went to the door and he looked at it and he's like, did you do this? I was like, yes. And that's what little girls can do. Wow. Good on you. How old were you then? I was about 11 or 12. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Gosh, it's, oh, it's so much conditioning, isn't it? And your parents have obviously been told these messages all their life and generations believe these things. Do you think it was because you were growing up in a different culture that you were seeing a different side of things? Definitely. It was definitely a cultural thing. If you go to China, what they used to teach the kids is there's a place for the man, there's a place for the woman. You know, my dad, when I was writing the book, I asked him about these gender roles. And one thing that he said to me was, well, your grandfather used to teach me that even if women can fly and in in Chinese movies, they always have people flying and that's supposed to be like the most powerful skill you could have. So my grandfather used to say to my dad, even if women could fly, they're still women compared to men. Mm, Wow. Right. Yeah. I can sort of feel my blood boiling a little bit. It's like, (laughs) what do you mean? (laughs) Yeah. And, and so when my dad told me that, I was like, so do you believe that? And my dad goes, well, he is my father and I am his son. I was so livid by that, you know, but, but on the other hand, my mom is actually very independent woman. Mm. She, She would, she would talk. She always said to me, I want my daughters to be independent. I do not want you to rely on men. You know, I, I want you to one day, if you get married, you have choice, you're educated, you can, you can choose, you don't rely on that person. And so she always taught us that. And even with a doorknob incident, my mom had come out right after and she said, Hey, old man, are you done with the doorknob? And he's like, yeah, I guess so. And I was, I, I was so excited. I was like, mommy, I did it. I fixed it. He said, girls can't do it. And I'm the one that fixed it. And she was like, that's my girl. And she turned to him and she's like, that's what you get for telling your daughter she can't do it. 
And so she definitely supported us very differently and against the the cultural norms, probably because she had to experience a lot of that and she wasn't for it. Mm, how wonderful. And that's just breaking generational patterns right there, isn't it? It's so good. So yeah. good that you had that influence from your mom. But you spoke about how your parents were working all the time and I guess that means that often we don't get the connection with our parents that we we wish we had. Was that the the case for you? Very much so. My parents both worked two jobs. My mom's only day off was Sunday in which she was doing the groceries, cleaning the house, cooking, doing laundry, chauffeuring us to and from Chinese school. Like she was she never rested. And my dad was the same thing. He worked two jobs, you know, and, and on his days off, he would pack it with dental appointments, you know, driving us back and forth to doctors and dental appointments and all that stuff. And so we never really got to see our parents. My sister pretty much raised me. My older sister is 10 years older than me. So, you know, when I was two or three, she's 13, she's watching me. I always craved time. I still remember my dad would come home from work and all three of us would just run to him. It's like 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night when most kids are supposed to be asleep, but we're just awake because we're waiting for him to get home. So he comes in the door and all of us just run to him, one on each leg. I'm in the middle, arms up like, daddy, daddy, you know, like pick me up. And and so we we really, really craved our parents' time and attention. Mm. And it's so interesting, isn't it? Because obviously they came from China to give, well, especially your sister, uh, an extra special chance and the whole family. And the whole thing is because they want a better life for you. And yet the basic things of just not connecting in with their own children, not having that time, I guess that's what's happened for a lot of children from immigrant families, isn't it? Because they come here and they just, they have to work hard. They don't often have a choice to do it any other way yeah they they don't and I think it's partially it's the trauma that they've inherited experienced for my parents they were born right before communism came into China and so then when communism came in they experienced that shift and my dad for example he was born into a rich family you know, he, his toys were gold coins as a child. That's how rich he was. And then communism came over, they lost everything and he was always hungry and starving. And so he has this constant fear of not having enough and or losing it all just like that. So growing up and he, he even says now that his biggest regret from when we were kids is that he was constantly worrying about not having enough. And he's like, you know, you, your mom and I, we actually probably didn't need to take that second job. We would have been fine. Could, you know, right now we have all this extra money. We're old now and we barely spend anything. You know, we probably could have been totally fine. And what we ended up giving up was time with our daughters. And it was in a blink of an eye and our kids were just old and gone out of the house. You know, and that's, that's their biggest, biggest regret. And so that, that was a big motivator for me for wanting to move back, be 10 minutes away from them. They come every week to see me, to see their grandson. And so in many ways, it's, I want to have that connection now, even though we didn't have it as, as, as kids. And and that was one of his biggest regrets. So it's, it's like, what can I do to make that a little better? Yeah. That's beautiful. And as a child from a Chinese family growing up in America, you would have experienced racism. Can you speak about your earliest memories of racism? Yeah, a very vivid memory. So my it was a Sunday and Sundays typically my mom's cooking up a storm at home. And so my sisters and I were all at the playground and I was three on this playground and I was digging like in the dirt, playing with the ants. And then all of a sudden I heard this woman, this voice shouting, go back to your own country. And I'm three. So I look up and I look at the lady and I didn't really understand what she meant. 
like, what do you mean my own country? Because I was born in the US. So I'm like, but this is my country, right? Like, I'm so confused. But I could tell from her facial expression and her tone that she did not like me. And she just had this glare at my sisters and I. And I was just so confused. I didn't know what I had done wrong to anger her. And my older sister was just, I, I, she came, she started just pulling me. She's like, let's go. And I was like, why, why would we just leave? Mommy always said that we need to be nice. And this lady is not being nice. And my sister's like, nope, let's go. And I, I was just so, I'm, I'm a very stubborn child and I like to voice my opinion. So I just pulled my arm out of her, her grip. And I turned around and I looked at that lady and I said, you go back to your own country, you chocolate lady. And my sister just grabbed me and was like, all right, let's go. And so that was my first experience. And I didn't, didn't understand. I never, never told my parents about it. Cause I just didn't know that it was a thing that I should have even told my parents, mm. but yeah, I, I didn't understand, but I knew there was this, emo- this feeling of, I don't belong. Yeah. And when we keep those vivid memories so clear in our minds, it's had such an impact on you at that time, hasn't it? It's, it's, it's interesting. It's very hard to understand that anybody could speak to a three-year-old child like that. I mean, it just, you know, it's very hard to comprehend that that is something that, that happens, but I guess that sort of thing happens all the time, but really for a three-year-old, it's so much to deal with, isn't it? And it's straight away telling you, you don't belong here. And that person probably felt her own feelings of, I don't belong. And those things just get passed down through generations as well. It's just fear-based reactions. So you felt from a young age that you didn't belong. How did those feelings show up by the time you went to school? Throughout school, my nickname, so my Chinese name is Ching. And my dad sent me to school with Ching on all the paperwork. And so first day of class, I hated first day of class because teacher is reading off the name that you're registered as. And so she would say Ching. And I'd be like, no, my my name is Amy. Can you just call me Amy? But I all, all my classmates already heard Ching. So guess what they did for the rest of the year? They would say Ching Chong, you know, like, you know, they would make slanty eyes. My mom would make me lunches that were disgusting to other kids, right? They like one of my favorite foods is Mapo tofu, but it kind of looks like barf. And so when I took it to school, all the kids would make fun of me and they would say, ew, what are you eating? Barf. And all I ever longed for was just a peanut butter jelly sandwich. I was like, can she just make me a peanut butter jelly sandwich so that other kids will stop staring at me? And even my clothes, my parents couldn't afford clothes. So I got my sister's hand-me-downs. My oldest sister is 10. So by the time it got to me, these are like decade old clothes, Mm -hmm. style, you know, like wearing out holes. And so I always got made fun of with even my clothes. And I still remember one, one year, my grandma came to visit and she brought me a new sweatshirt. It was a pink sweatshirt. I was so excited. I was like, I'm going to go to school in this cool pink sweatshirt. It's new. Everyone's going to think I'm great. And I go to school and I got made fun of because what I didn't realize is the English words that were on the shirt did not make sense. I don't even remember what it said, but someone was like, what kind of English is that? You know, you, your country, you people don't know how to speak English. And I just got made fun of. And I just, I hated that sweatshirt, never wore it again. Oh my goodness. These stories, you know, it's just a moment in time, but it changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, that one moment where you thought I'm going to be the same as everybody else. And it's, it's so sad that we have, that's what we strive for, you know, in our world, we all striving to be the same, which, you know, I wish we could just blow that out of the water and understand how beautiful the gifts are that we all bring. But as a child, there's so much fear-based judgment, isn't there? If you're not the same as us, we don't understand it. And So, I mean, how did you feel going to school every day? I hated it. I, I, I loved school because I, I'm a lifelong learner. So even as a kid, I loved to learn. I loved class, but I hated 
the school process. I was definitely not one of the popular kids. And I I would maybe have one best friend throughout the entire year, but I was, it was, it was kind of lonely. And also my parents, because they're very protective, I wasn't allowed to really go out to play. I was only occasionally allowed to go to kids' birthday parties. So it was kind of like me and the TV. Mm, yeah. And it's lonely, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so with your parents being from, from China, what was their discipline like for you growing up? They were very authoritative, authoritarian, you know, do as I say, follow my rules. There's, there's something called a feather duster. It's like this wooden handle with these brown feathers and everyone in the Asian community knows about because they raised us using that to, to instill fear, right? So it's, it's like, if you don't listen to me, mom's going to pull out the duster and just hold it in your, her hand and you're going to cringe. And so what I learned was to obey, like when that thing comes out, whatever they say, you know, you obey it. And, you know, I, I was hit a few times. My sister probably got it the worst because she was very stubborn, refused to apologize, refused. She was like, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not going to. So they just keep hitting her. Yeah. Yeah. And when you grow up in that sort of fear, what does it make you believe about yourself? Do you think, I mean, if, if you don't, if you're not allowed to have an opinion, how does that play out in your mental health? I think, I think it, it depends. I mean, in terms of your self-identity and even your, your mental health, it's, it's not a positive thing because it means you're not worthy. Right. Mm. And you lose your sense of having a voice of speaking up, of sharing what's really authentic to you. In my family, I would say it led to a lot of rebellious behavior, especially with my middle sister. She, you know, any, anything that my parents said, she would just fight. She was a fighter and she would rebel at 18. She left home. She got married. She got tattoos. She got a boob job. You know, she just, all of that. And when anything my parents said, don't do it. She's like, well, F you, I'm going to go do it. You know, it's like my opinion matters. But in my mind, it's almost like, even if you're rebelling against the thing your parents are telling you not to do, you're still being impacted or influenced by what they're saying to you. It's like, you're, you know, is this really what you wanted? Or are you just doing it because you're trying to rebel? And I did it, did that too, where like my dad said, we went, we were on a college visit and I was at NYU with him. And he was like, this place is too dangerous. You're not going to go here. And I was like, watch me. So I applied, you know, to NYU just to piss him off because he said, you are not permitted to come. I didn't, I had no interest in going. And so I, I actually chose not to go. I got in and chose not to go but I applied just to anger him, you know? And so it's even, even through the rebelliousness, you know, we're still being influenced. Absolutely. And I guess also because you missed out on that deeper connection with your parents when they're working all the time, somebody's telling you what to do and you're just taking it. There's no other kind of deeper conversation going on, I guess, either. No deeper conversations. Emotions are not permitted. When I cried, I actually got punished for crying. So I learned to bite back any sort of emotion. You know, I would bite my tongue if I, if I'm about to cry because I would get in trouble for crying and I never saw my dad cry. I only saw anger. And that's actually what, what happened is both my sisters and I, that's how we express any other emotion now right? Like our default is anger. If we're hurt, if we're, if we're afraid, any of those things are weak. So we mask it with anger. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And your parents were obviously very focused on money when you were growing up. What, what did you hear about money? What did you learn about money or what were your beliefs about money from your childhood? That's a great question. So one is I don't deserve to spend money on myself, right? Like I struggle to do that. Another one was that if I can save a penny, 
then I'm going to save a penny. And even to this day, my husband makes fun of me. When I was working at Google, I got a great salary. You know, we would, we would travel, we would do all that stuff, but I would be so excited if I could save 50 cents on a bottle of mouthwash and it was on sale, I would run home and I'm like, guess what? Mouthwash was on sale and I had a coupon and I'd be like the happiest person in the world. So, you know, always try to save money. Don't spend on myself. And also if there's something that I want, then I have to sacrifice for it. Mm-hmm. So if there's something that I want that's more expensive than it should be, then I have to either work hard or get a second job, you know, not spend on something else that I want. There, there, it, that it basically has to be painful. I don't know yeah. if painful is the right word, but it has to be painful. Yeah. I was actually thinking of the word pain. It's like I need to experience pain in order to uh, to receive, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly that. And it was it was probably because for my parents, they had to suffer to give me what I have. And so it's like, okay, well, if I have anything or if I feel that I can you know, get something, then I must suffer also to, to make, to be worthy of it. Yeah, absolutely. I totally understand that myself. Have you kind of worked through those things? I've worked through a lot of it. It has been a journey and it, it, it honestly, it was a lot of my husband helping me along the way. And even so right now I'm my own business owner, right? And for the longest time, I'm like, oh, I could just do this myself. Oh, you know, like I don't need this. Oh, the free version is fine, right? And it's slowly that I'm like, you know, I should probably hire someone to help me with this. Mm. I should probably. And so right now, like, yeah, I'm, I I just recently hired an admin. I'm hiring someone to, to help me with some of my marketing work. Like, you know, I'm actually investing in this so that I'm not pulling all nighters, trying to do all the things. And I know I can do it, but also like, what else could I be doing with that time? Mm, Yes, absolutely. And I totally hear you. I've been through the same process myself and it's a slow, it's, it's like you have to keep bringing this awareness back. Don't you, when you're plowing on and just doing everything yourself and then you go, actually, I could do this differently. (laughs) I could just get some help with this, or I could just pay for that, you know, it's it's a slow thing because it's so deeply ingrained in who we are to never spend any money. I 100% hear you. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So when you speak of your parents and just that disconnection and the punishment, did your parents show you love or how do you think they showed you love? They showed me love in the way that most Chinese people show their love, which is acts of service. And so they would do things. Have you ever heard of the five love languages? Yes. Yeah. So it was definitely... For them, it was acts of service. Mm-hmm. They did not know how to show it with physical touch or with words, right? They never said, I love you. They never cuddled, gave you hugs and kisses. None of that. It was always, hey, Amy, you must be hungry. Here's your favorite food. You know, they don't even say it's your favorite food. They're like, eat this. And they just put it in front of you. They're always thinking about you, you know, like, my dad, when I first moved here, he knows how much I like these, these buns. And so he would drive out of his way, go there, buy these buns that he doesn't even buy for himself because they're too expensive and then come and drop it off. So those, that's how my parents show their love. Yeah. That's yeah. It's good when you can recognize that as love. I think as when we're little kids, we don't recognize those things as love, right? Do we? Yeah. 
so growing up, you know, in America, I I used to see every, everyone around me, they would say, I love you. My best friend, her mom would always drop her off and say, I love you, honey. And TV shows, you know, movies, I love you is just thrown around affection, physical touch are thrown around. And I always wondered like, why can't my parents do this? Why do they not say it, say it to me? And so I was about 14 and I I was like, you know, I'm going to test this out. So one morning I went to my parents and, and I said, I love you right before I was supposed to go to school. And my mom, she looked at me, she's like, okay, go to school. I'm like, well, say, I love you back. And she's like, no, you're going to be late to school. I'm like, well, whose fault is that? Say you love me. And then I'll go to school. And she's like, okay, 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 fine. I love you. I love you. Go to school, go to school. And she like kind of waved me off. And, and so it was, it was like this persistence. It was the first time she said, I love you. It wasn't exactly like the most affectionate way, but Hey, I got the words out. And so I call it training, right? Mm -hmm. I got used to those words. And so I would always say, I love you. They would always respond with, I don't love you or like, love what love? I don't love, you know, they they would always kind of reject it. I would give them hugs and kisses and they would kind of like push me away. Like they didn't love it. And now they openly say they love me and they openly give me hugs and, and kisses, you know, but it was, it was getting them used to, to, to that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel quite emotional when you say, you know, that you've, you've, trained them and now that they do it openly because it just shows that it is a, a a really deep primal need to have that kind of love from the people that are important to you in your life and you obviously you know going ahead and saying oh, I'm just going to ask for it I'm just going to make it happen you know it's 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 hard because you were probably rejected over and over and over and yet something in you was sensing I, I think they do love me. They just don't know how to show that. And so it's a beautiful thing that you've brought that out of them, I think. Thank you. Yeah. And the great thing is my mom was actually just telling me recently how her neighbors, her neighbors are Chinese and they have kids probably around 14, 15. And, and their mom was talking to my mom and just saying how, the kids want the parents to be more affectionate and to say, I love you, but you know, it's not their thing. And so my parent, my mom actually told her about how I trained my parents. She's like, well, you know, our daughter used to be like that too. And, and she's the one who got us used to saying it and you just yeah. practice, you know, it's hard, but then you practice and our daughter forced us to practice and now she's able to do it. So, or we're able to do it. So you, you should start practicing. So they're like encouraging other people to to try, even though it's hard. Oh, that's so gorgeous. I love that so much. And so when you are growing up in this family and there's there's so many restrictions and rules around your life, what was your dream? What did you want to do when you grew up? I had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. In in college, I actually wrote down my major as undecided, which angered my my parents. They're like, how could you not know what you want to do when you're 18? You're paying all this money to go to school undecided. And, and I ended up studying both computer science and public relations, very, very different fields. Cause I like the analytical side, but I also like the creative side. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I did, I did at a very young age think I want to be an artist, but my parents didn't permit that. They were like, you're going to be poor till you die. So you're not allowed to do that. We will disown you. So I was like, okay, fine. I'll set that dream aside. But yeah, I, I had no clue what I wanted to do and, and ended up going into consulting, technology consulting. And then I, I was like, not sure if that's the right field. So then I went back to business school and went into marketing and then ended up at Google. And my, my big dream had always been, I want to travel the world. So I did. And in January of 2020, my husband and I, we just sold everything sold everything, quit our corporate jobs and took a one-way flight from New York to go volunteer in Ghana. And we volunteered at a breast cancer nonprofit, but my parents did not understand that. I actually, the day before my wedding, I broke down in tears because I thought I had disappointed my parents again. 
I thought they were disappointed for one, I was marrying this white guy instead of a good Chinese boy, which is what they had always hoped for. And then two, they knew that I had plans to quit my job. And my dad was pretty upset. He was like, what am I going to tell people that my daughter's quitting like Google because Google's the Harvard of companies. And, and he used to hand out my business cards to everyone telling them, this is where my daughter works. You know, he's like, what am I going to tell people now (laughs) you're in Africa volunteering and doing, you know, not making any money. So he was, they were pretty livid. And you actually broke down on the eve of your wedding with all the pressure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's so much, isn't it? To, to just have that weight of expectation. I mean, you've obviously found, this person that you want to marry, you know, you've got these amazing plans, but you just know that this is something that your parents won't accept. Yeah. And, and how did you get through that? I mean, did you, were they able to see your side of it at all? The beautiful thing is I, I broke down in front of my mom and she just looked at me and then pulled me into her arms. And she told me, I will never understand your dreams, but when you have a dream, you don't need other people to understand. You just need them to love you. And I love you. And, And it was the first time that I had felt like this connection with her where she was just affectionate with me. She told me she loved me. And it was almost like she gave me a blessing to go pursue my dreams and she didn't have to understand it. And she said, you know what? We're going to worry when you're in Africa because we know nothing about what it's like out there. We won't be able to reach you, but that's our job as parents. We're supposed to worry about you, mm-hmm. but if it makes you happy, then go do it. Wow. That's, that's a moment, isn't it? Yeah. And that, that, that has, that's another one of those memories that has been etched into to my brain. Yeah. And yeah, I can just feel the guilt it's so much guilt and so much shame, isn't it, that that you're holding for everything that's not in this tiny little kind of lane that you're supposed to. And and so interesting that your dad's like, well, what am I supposed to do about this? It's like, you know, that that thing where the parents are so like it's it's so much about them, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's not it's not about your dreams and hopes for life. It's it's how's it going to affect him? You know, you're getting rid of this Google status and yeah, that that's, that's just so hard. I mean, what sort of changes did you have to make in your own brain in order to just let those things go? Do you think? I, I always told myself that I had let it go, but in truth, there's always deep down this longing, this longing to have love, their love, have their approval, to have their acceptance. When, when I had quit my job at Google, I had already decided that I wanted to go into coaching in my own business and, and my parents totally disapproved of it. And I was like, well, I'm going to do it anyways. But there was still this part of me that felt this need to prove that I could do it to my parents. Right. And proving it to them would mean how much income am I making from it? You know, is it enough to survive? You know, am I good at what I do? And so it was this constant like conversation all the time when they would call me. So how many clients do you have now? How much are your clients paying you? You know, and it was like sharing it with them and then hoping that they would say, oh, that's good. And it was just like a mere, oh, that's good. Where you're like, oh, they approve, mm. you know, and so it's, it's consciously, consciously at the time I, I was like, oh, I don't need their approval. I'm already doing my own thing. But there is this like unconscious part that was still craving it. And, and it's not until now that I look back and I'm like, oh yeah, that's what was happening. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And I know you spent many hours talking to your parents when you were writing this book. How did those meaningful conversations go? What were the things you learned in those conversations? Yeah. So I I started writing this book because I coach a lot of Asian women. And one of my clients, she's a 55-year-old senior vice president at this large bank, very, very successful. During our coaching work, she said, or she discovered that she wanted to start her own business, but it was a creative business. 
And for Asians, we're not allowed to do creative work. <laughs> and so she, she told me, I'm going to have to wait to do it when my dad passes. And I was like, oh, okay. And so when we dug into it, what she shared with me is she goes into little girl mode. And she goes into this little girl mode when she fears her dad's disapproval or disappointment. And her dad had always said, you've got to be a president at a company. And, you know, she's vice president now, not there. And mind you, her dad was 85 at this point and she's afraid of his disapproval. And yet she was so afraid to have conversations with him. She's like, I'm not going to go there. He's just going to mansplain me. He's going to, you know, criticize me. I'm, I don't want to go through with that. And I started seeing this pattern among a lot of my clients. So then I started becoming curious, what are the stories that I have that I'm holding about my parents and our relationship? And I started jotting down all those, I call them myths, right? The stories. And I had a lot of them, like my success will never be good enough for my parents, or they are unhappy that I didn't marry a good Chinese boy, or that being a boy is better than being a girl, or that I can never repay them for their sacrifices. So just all these stories that I had, and I started conversations with my parents on those things, but starting it was not easy. Mm -hmm. So when I first asked my dad, he was like, I was like, you know, could we have some conversation just, you know, not, not just logistical things, but, you know, really meaningful conversations. And he was like, well, I don't have anything interesting to share. Maybe you should talk to your uncle. He's a lawyer. He's probably got more important things than I have to share. Right. And, and so even that notion that a lawyer has something more important to say than me. Right. Like, and so I told him, no, I want to hear your stories. And at first, my parents were really hesitant. So I, I warmed them up by asking very simple things like, what's your favorite color? What were your favorite activities when you were a child? You know, tell me, how did you like to play? So really getting them warmed up to me asking deeper questions. But once we got warmed up and we started diving into these deeper questions, they started opening up more. But I will say out of the 40 hours, the first 20, 25 hours filled with emotions, resentment, anger, like a lot of triggering on both sides. And we would often have to pause the conversations and just be like, all right, let's resume later. And I would come home, I would be in tears. And it was my husband who was the support system. I, I, I would often tell him like, I can't do this anymore. And he's like, what is your why? Why, why are you doing this? Right? Like what type of relationship do you want with them? And he would remind me keeping that top of mind, like why I'm doing this. And then I would chill out, rest, and then go back. Mm -hmm. And now on the other end of this, our relationship is completely different. One example. So I, I was actually going through fertility treatments and I had an embryo transfer and I was afraid to tell my parents that it was not successful because with my sister, when she had miscarriages, they blamed her. They said, you must have done something right. And that's the, the Asian way. It's, it's always your fault. Something you did caused it. And so they blamed her. And so obviously that does not feel very good. And so I was afraid to tell them, but my dad called me and he was like, oh, when do you find out, you know, how are you feeling? And I, I felt this tightening, you know, in my chest, in my throat, but I mustered the words out and I said, it didn't work. I don't, I don't, I'm not pregnant. It's gone. It's over. And I was like bracing myself for the response and the criticism and the blame. And I was so surprised because my dad said, you know, things happen for a reason. And if it works out, it works out. And if it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, fate, fate, fate is funny that way. And then my mom picks up the phone and I'm just like, oh, what's she going to say? And she picks up, she's like, are you okay? Do you, do you need me to come over? Are you okay? You know, don't, don't be upset. And, and I was just like, holy shit, who are these people? <laughs> Because prior to the conversations, I don't think they would have responded in that way. Oh, wow. That's incredible. That's such a turnaround. What had happened with your sister? Was that quite a few years before? It was probably seven years ago, seven or eight years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But even during my pregnancy, which was only like three, three years ago, they would lecture me and criticize me for all of the things, you know, I went hiking and they're like, you're going to cause your child to, I don't know, whatever. Right. And they're, they're constantly 
criticizing me for what I choose to do. Yeah. But just putting the blame on a, a person for their own miscarriage, I mean, that is, that's just such deep trauma that, that you're putting onto that person. I mean, all of this stuff, the, the messages are, oh, it's just so full on, isn't it? I just can't, I, I don't know. I I don't know how people survive this level of shame and guilt. What do you think you've learned about generational trauma and patterns throughout this process of writing this book? I learned a lot about my parents' history and it gave me, because so I went in with the intention of, I want to learn about them. I want to understand them. I did not go in with the intention. I want to change them. I didn't go in with, I want them to understand me. It was all about, I want to understand them. So I heard a lot about their stories and I, I get it now because my mom, it was the same thing. She, she was blamed for everything. My sister having a hole in her heart, my mom was blamed for it because she lost the kid before my sister. And I think it was my, her, my grandmother who told her like, it's your fault that your daughter has this problem because you know, probably something happened when you lost that kid and it, it left your insides dirty, right? Like very old school, traditional thinking. And so it's, it's almost like my mom had to build up this armor to protect herself. And so it's, 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 it's just how she responds now. Like, oh, like the reason for this is because the person did something wrong. Mm, yeah. Wow. That's, I can just feel my throat like it's so tight. You know, it's just like you can feel people over generations not being able to speak, you know, not being able to be. It's just suffocating, isn't it? Oh my goodness. So you have your own child now. How are you raising him differently? So he is 18 months now. And I, a part of why I wanted to finish writing this book, why I wanted to do the healing work is because I don't want to pass my bullshit on to him. <laughs> I want it to stop. And so a lot of how I'm raising him, like one of the things is allowing him to process his emotions. He has started his terrible twos already. <laughs> he's He's got big emotions because he struggles. And so one of the things is just creating the space to allow him, if he's in a safe place, to express his emotions in whatever way he needs to, to let it flow through instead of trying to shut it down. It is also very much, it's not, I, I don't want to be authoritative. I don't want to tell him he must be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. I want him to live his life, to pursue his dreams, to figure out what makes him happy. Mm. You know, so in whatever, I I basically want him to be him, the perfectly imperfect him and to love himself for all of that. Absolutely. It's so beautiful. And do you think it's just constant awareness of of the way we think? I mean, it's it's just sort of, constantly thinking okay you know I'm gonna do it differently here I I don't need to do it that way it's it's really awareness a lot of it isn't it yeah it is it is awareness it is also I'm a somatic coach so a lot of our tendencies our traumas the way that we show up lives in our body our tissues have intelligence our muscles have memory it's like riding a bike when you've done it a lot it's, it's how your body remembers. And so it's teaching your body a different way of responding. So for example, I I was telling you earlier that my automatic default has always been anger. So it's recognizing how does anger show up in my body and being able to step away to process or to, you know, take a pause or do what I need to process those emotions and to recognize what is beneath the anger instead of just lashing out. Yeah. 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 It's all such good stuff. So your book is called Unfinished Business. What inspired you to actually write the book? A couple of things. One is wanting to heal my relationship with my parents because I, from all my work with my clients, it seems that most of us, the issues that we deal with today, a lot of it stems from our relationship with our parents. 
And so probably why this is such a great podcast, right? A lot of the the stuff comes from our relationship with our parents. So I was like, well, I'm sure I've got a lot of stuff. And how do I heal that? How do I fix that? How do I change that? How do I change the narrative? And how do I change it so that I'm not passing this on to future generations? How do I stop it right here? Because just knowing we want to change is not enough. Like one of my friends has said, I want to raise my kids differently than my dad did. And I watch him and how he's raising his kid and he's doing the same thing his dad is doing. It's just automatic response, right? And I was like, well, I don't want to go into this automatic response and and accidentally do the same thing my parents did raising me. So I want to change that narrative and do something different. And healing my relationship with my parents is probably the first step. Yeah, absolutely. And so for someone right now who's struggling with immigrant parents and and the culture, how do you think your book can help them in practical ways? So the book is structured with eight different myths, the myths, stories that I had, and each myth tells my side of the story, my parents' side of the story. And then there's like, I call it a date with your parents. So there's a worksheet for you to do where you have self-reflective prompts. You have questions to ask your own parents and they range from really light touch questions to to the deeper questions, depending on where you are in your relationship with them. And then afterwards, there are more reflective prompts for you to do. So it is it is something that is tangible that you can take and start doing it with your own parents. Oh, that sounds amazing. Such a good practical way to change something, isn't it? To have all of that information, all of those things to work through together. So if somebody's listening to this and they're very hesitant to start this process, what what's your advice around that? I would say to recognize that conversations with parents can be hard. They could be triggering. So really starting with like, why do you want to have these conversations? What type of relationship do you want to have with your parents? Keeping your why top of mind as you embark on this journey. If we have a very, very strong why, then we're able to keep doing things. And the thing to always remember is this is not and was never going to be easy. It still isn't always easy for me, right? But it can get easier. Mm. And it's about putting in that energy to do it. Nothing nothing that was worthwhile was ever easy. Mm. It's so true. It's so true. And it, it deciding you're going to do it, I suppose, and knowing it's not going to be easy because you're changing some big things. But I, I believe when you start and you get through that initial kind of storm I guess there's something more beautiful on the other side so it's definitely worth starting I think yeah and and it's going into them with the intention of I'm not trying to have them understand me I'm not trying to have them change I just want to understand and hear their stories and the beautiful thing is for a lot of our parents they also heal on this process because most of them have never actually had another human being sit down to listen to their stories and their life. Yeah, absolutely. And that's life changing in itself, isn't it? Just, just allowing it all out, letting somebody hear it. I mean, it's just such a beautiful release and part of the journey. And apart from your book, you're also a coach. So how are you helping women to heal? I help women to let go of the shoulds. I help them to rewrite their narrative, to build that self-confidence and to learn to ask for what they want and to start saying no more often. Mm. Yeah, sounds so good. And so who should contact you for help? So I specifically work with women of color who want to heal that intergenerational trauma who want to build their self-confidence, to speak their truth, and to be the author of their own narrative. People who are feeling stuck with all the shoulds. Oh, yes. Yeah. Can find me at amyyipcoaching.com. So A-M-Y-Y-I-P as in planet, coaching.com. Oh, Amy, I love everything you've, you've done. I mean, it's such a journey, isn't it, to change generational curses and patterns and 
you've been so strong in doing that. You've really wanted to make change. And just the way that your mum has now reacted to some of these things that have come up since, you know, you can just see the impact that you've had and and you're not just changing your life, you're changing it for your son and his children and, and you're changing it for generations and it's so powerful. I wish you so much good luck with your book and thank you so much for sharing your story today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. journey of healing and community with me if you listen on apple i would love it if you could take a moment to post a review for the podcast it would mean a lot check the show notes for all links recommended in this episode if you're on instagram follow me at my big love project and please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it Thank you for joining me. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining me. I'll catch you next week. 